Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Astros Baseball. Tom and I have a very special guest today, the author of Winning Fixes Everything, Evan Drellick. Evan, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, so I guess the first question, we, I mean, we all know that you were part of the athletic that broke the big story on the Astros, and so you're writing this book, so... Like, why did you want to write this book, and who's your target audience? Is it Astros fans, Astros haters? What was the reason by doing the book? I mean, I knew, you know, I'd covered the Astros going back to 2013 into 2016, right? So I'd been there, and if you go back to 2014, so now nine years ago, I'd written a story that at the time got a decent amount of attention about their culture, Um and, you know, there'd been a lot of stuff that happened in my time in Houston, I mean, even before you get to 2017, the World Series and and the success and the cheating. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. You have the Cardinals hacking situation. Um, Porter gets fired. Hinge comes in. Major time of transition. A lot of stuff going on. I knew there were cultural issues I because I'd written about them and I'd stayed in touch with Astro sources and, you know, People introduce you to others over time. And, you know, it's an anecdote that didn't make the book, but I, I remember pretty vividly right after the Astros win in 17, um, I was texting with somebody who was telling me about how basically stingy the Astros, you know, higher ups were being about who can go to the parade, you know, whether you could, I don't know if it was about getting a plus one or whatever it was, but the sentiment was just like, you know, even when they win, same old stuff. And so, there, I had known for a long time there was there was stuff underneath the surface in Houston. And, you know, the Brandon Taubman incident happened. So I figured I had a pretty unique vantage here, you know, viewpoint of, of having actually covered the team. Nobody else, you know, other people writing about the Astros who might have dropped in for a little bit, but nobody had been a beat writer. Um, and I, I knew there was a bigger story to tell. And so that's that's why I did the book. And. You know, I tried to stay quiet about the Astros really until the book came out because I didn't want to like have half a discussion or make a point about something. And there was a lot of stuff I sometimes wanted to talk about, but I, I wanted to wait till the book was done. And as far as target audience, you know, I mean, I tell people there's a book, there's a baseball on the cover of the book, but it's really a management culture book. It, it's it's really about understanding how did we get here? How did we get to the Astros having this big blow up where everybody gets fired and you have the cheating scandal? How did the, how did they evolve? How did the sport evolve last decade? So it's, it's, I tried to tell a larger story and I think that larger story is relevant for anybody who's a baseball fan or curious how a baseball front office works. And I think even people who aren't big baseball fans could enjoy the, running a business aspect of the book. I really, I tried to write it so that it was accessible. I don't know if I succeeded in that, but um, you know, I, I do think if Astros fans want the sober reality of, of what was going on, I think there's a lot to learn in my book. You know, it's, it's not a rah, rah book, but there, there's a lot to learn there and it, a lot of hard work went into it. Evan, uh, thanks again for, for taking time to talk to us. So you said 2013. So I'm, I may have my timeline messed up, but you kind of predate Luno and, and you 
Locks he got out that the- Luno gets there in late um, 11. So Crane gets the team quickly. Luno gets there in the winter meetings of 11. So Luno had already had, I guess he was there in 12 and 13. So it, I got there right after the end of Luno's second season. Okay. So I guess my question then is, do you feel like this culture was, was always that way? Was there a shift at some point in time? Or this is just kind of the sentiment you got from them from day one? Well, you know, even in the book, I think this you can see it. Over time, things change, and in some ways for the worse. Um, you know, early on, Jeff has a few people around him who had had some experience with other teams. David Stearns, who really kind of well-respected guy in the industry. He'd come from Cleveland. He'd come from the commissioner's office. There was a lawyer who had come from the Red Sox, who was, in the book, they're described as kind of a chief of staff, a, a, a woman named Stephanie Wilka. And she had had experience with other teams. What actually ends up happening is that over time, it becomes kind of more and more insular. You know, people leave, and they're not really replaced. It, and it... it you know, if you get to kind of to the end, it's really a lot of people who all they knew as far as working in baseball had been with Jeff, um, you know, that they, they had, they, they were outsiders who were brought in. There's a lot of loyalty there and kind of, you know, not always knowing how, where to put your foot down basically. And even sometimes when they try, they, they were overruled, you know, in the case of, of Osuna, but um yeah, I mean, I think like anything, any any business, any setting, there's going to be an evolution. Um, you know, it's not to say they didn't learn some lessons along the way, but uh, it, it did it didn't evolve for the better in in totality. Um, even as the team is winning a lot of games. So something I read when someone was talking about your book. So to start off, there's people that I follow on Twitter, and they're saying, you know what, this isn't just a total Astros bashing book. It actually gives you behind the scenes about the front office. Do you know? I mean, like what I've read is that Luno is winning at all costs and could care less who he hurts and who he steps on. Is that just kind of how he was? At the end of the day, the result, like, is that um you know there, there's a lot of discussion after the science dealing in the book of what was the astros culture and uh yeah, i talked to a lot of people uh about it and you know one of them made a good point that it's not that the astros set out to be villains and decided i want to be evil <laughs> you know, it's not it's not how it happened but there was always a mentality that you had to be continuously better continuously better um and there wasn't a lot of attention paid to really anything beyond those bottom line results. It was, are we, you know, got to win games, got to keep winning games, got to keep outsmarting the competition and got to make money, right? Got to make money for Jim Crane and to wins and profits. And, you know, what ends up doing in the Astros under Luno, you know, what, what, what ends up doing in his front office is all the other stuff he didn't pay attention to the stuff that, you know, the famous anecdote, Jim Crane slides a piece of paper over to him, right? right when he's taken over, you know, the blank piece of papers indicating this is your oyster, Jeff, to, you know, make it how it should look. But he doesn't, he doesn't focus on compliance and following the rules. He doesn't focus on treating people well, paying people well. He doesn't focus on, uh, 
Um, there's there's an anecdote in the book about when when Codebreaker the the spreadsheet starts getting developed, and and there's there's an executive who's like, you know, my first thought wasn't, is this uh, cheating? My first thought is, is this you know what is the data efficacy of this? Is this is this good math? Is this and and it, I think that's telling, right? That nobody's sitting there going, well, gee, maybe you know, should we do this? Uh, maybe not, you know, and and. There's a reason it takes a long time in the book to actually get to sign stealing because you got to understand all the stuff that happens before it and um, how it creates this environment where, you know, at the end, I don't think it's any surprise what happened in Houston happened. I mean, beyond the general like, wow, anybody who's willing to do that, you know, the culture enabled it. Um, I guess one thing that I'm kind of curious, do you, do you look back on your time in Houston fondly? Do you look back on it uh, with disdain? Um, obviously you made a lot of connections, a lot of relationships, and then you moved on to, to bigger and better things. I'm just curious because I know when people read your book, I, I, I guess the, the, the thought is, Oh, well, he just hated it here. And maybe that's the, maybe that's kind of, you know, not the truth. So I kind of like to hear your perspective. No, I, like, I loved Houston. Um, I had a great group of, you know, I was in my twenties at that point, I think. Right. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of other 20 somethings at the paper at the time. I had a, I had a friend group. I actually had a little bit of, I had some cousins in Houston. So I had a little bit of family around. Uh, I thought the city, I, I still say this. I don't think I've lived in a better food city. I think there's more creativity. I've lived in New York, Boston, and briefly Los Angeles. And I'm not saying those cities, and I live in New York now, um, but but the amount of kind of creative energy of, of these big open restaurants where people are trying new things, it, it, it I, lo I love Houston uh, in a lot of ways. It was hard for me personally in some ways, you know, I, I moved there and kind of gave up my whole life in, in, on the Northeast, but no, I, I don't look back on my time in Houston with disdain or um, I left because I didn't know what the career trajectory for me would be. If you go back to 2016, the the Boston Herald to try to hire me after my first year in Houston, I'm like, I can't, I just got here. I, it's way too soon for me to jump. And they came after me again the next year. And it was a very difficult decision. I actually took less money that I was making in Houston to go back to Boston. The reason I did that was because it's a bigger media market. There were, you know, you, there were TV jobs or radio jobs. Or it, I thought I could get somewhere. And I didn't know what that would look like if I stayed in Houston. The athletic hadn't started yet, or it wasn't, they certainly weren't in Houston yet, you know? So it was really a career decision. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I have, I have a lot of fondness in my heart for, for Houston. I think as fans, most of us had zero idea what was going on behind the scenes with the front office. And myself, when they made the trade for Roberto Osuna, I was shocked. You know, I was like, whoa, aren't, we're yeah. the good guys. That's how I looked at it. Like, you know, we're the lovable losers that were starting to win. And I, I, I was pretty crazy. And that kind of seemed like that got, got the ball rolling as – far as us being bad guys but I think you already talked about that but you know Luno we know about him and a, a lot of Astro fans are like we want Luno back we want him back and I never did because 
he was part of the culture that got us to be the fans that we are. But what I was wanting to ask you, did you see his, I don't know if it was a confession, but his video that went out on MLB where he denied everything and he didn't know. And he had this big notebook full of proof and like, what, what were your thoughts when you watched that video? I, I think you're talking, he did. Um, He sat down with, KPRC in Houston, if, if that's what you're talking about. That's, that's the only that's video I was, aware. right? Yeah, yeah I know. I know he was in his house and he was like, I have this big, huge notebook. And yeah, yeah. He, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way with his approach after. I mean, look, with his approach while he was there, but then his approach afterward as well, trying to blame everybody else, pass off the buck. You know, and it's really optically bad. This is somebody who was very eager for a long time to take a lot of credit, really all the credit for, for all the good stuff that happened. And then something bad happens, and oh, that's not my fault, right? And, and um, yeah, you know, he he rubbed people the wrong way went, as a general manager, um, and then, you know, talk about whether he could he could come back. To, it's always possible he could come back to the game at some point. I think it's unlikely for a variety of reasons with him. I think he left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. I think, you know, the commissioner took his culture to task publicly, right? In, in the report, the the MLB report, he rips apart the culture. And, and I, I think that works against him. Um, you know, you look at, um, I lost my train of thought because I've been doing too many of these. <laughs> I do the same thing all the time. Yeah, it'll come back to me. I can uh, ask you oh, something no, else. The fact, oh, ahead, sued, the fact that he sued Jim Crane, right? Wow. You're a major league baseball owner. That's probably going to give you some pause. The guy was willing to sue the, sue sue an owner, so I think there's a lot working against his return. You know, MLB had evidence that certainly suggested Jeff uh, could have been aware of the sign stealing, and every at every turn it was, oh, I didn't read that email. No, that conversation didn't happen. So denial, 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 and you know, you you reach a point where there's a credibility concern. Uh, with him and and so i think in general no he's he he's revered for the ability to create a baseball roster right jeff luno did a lot of very smart good things in terms of constructing a roster putting together a baseball team figuring out you know which stones to overturn to to, to find advantages but it's all the other stuff that came with it and i think i think that's the problem when you know when fans sit there and go i want him back you're, you're only paying attention to one thing. And it's the thing that everybody's trained to pay attention to, right? It's the wins. And, you know, that goes to the title of the book. Does winning fix everything? Well, in the case of the 2017 Astros, you, you really have this extreme example where they won a title, but the conversation doesn't end there, you know? And that's, that's rare that you, that, that, that isn't the case, but it was the case. So I know like, for myself and and obviously some some people that I follow on Twitter, you know, especially some of the guys that that feel that you know there is a place for Jeff Luno in baseball. There's an argument on the other side of that that I feel that some people would make that this is happening in all these other in all these other clubs, not to the level obviously, but that if if you're not trying to, you know, push the boundaries to win, then you're just not doing your job. Whether it's you know. Uh, uh, looking the other way at steroid era stuff or whatever. And and that's probably not a, a great uh, example, but I think that's, that's the argument that some fans have. And, and I'm just curious, do you feel that, you know, 
there is a level of this that, okay, we can say, yes, the Astros under Jeff Luna went too far, but it wasn't like there wasn't a basis for him to start from. It wasn't like he was this guy that just went out on his own rogue and that other owners, other GMs weren't trying to at least push the boundaries in a similar sense. Yeah, I guess it depends specifically what you mean. Is is it in regards to sign stealing in particular, or is it all the other stuff? Um, yeah, do other front offices in general, forget sign stealing for a sec, do other front offices have some unsavory practices? Absolutely. There's a quote from Kevin Goldstein, former Astros pro, you know, longtime executive with the Astros under Jeff, um, toward the end of the book, which is, I'm paraphrasing, you know, baseball as an industry treats people like crap and he used a different word um <laughs> and the astros aren't sole proprietors or anything like that and that's true you know and 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 uh it is not as though the setup is one gm bad 29 other gms good um and and, and that's not i don't think that's really that's not i don't think what the book is suggesting or, or really my reporting is suggested i do think um there's there there is an extremity all around here to what happened that you know you could be innovative and smart and win a lot of baseball games and not treat people the way jeff luno and jim crane treated people like the notion that it had to go here or else we wouldn't have won or be innovative i i just think it's a really disingenuous argument um you know at the end of the day there was a result here right there was you saw what happened. You saw Brandon Taubman fly off the handle. Um, there was a lot of other stuff going on with this organization that I think at some point it was going to blow up. And I, I don't think we look at all the other teams that, you know, might do some unsavory things or all the other GMs who might be jerks in some way of their own and go, well, that's a tinderbox. It's about to explode. And it really was in Houston. It, it was, you know, it, something was going to happen. And in the end, multiple things happened. Do you think this explosion that you're talking about, like things that would have came out with the front office, that if the Astros wouldn't have won the World Series in 2017, that it would probably be back page news instead of like in the forefront like it is now? You, you mean, does, does the Astros winning make the news of how, of what was going on behind the scenes bigger? Bigger, yeah. Interesting question. Um, Probably to an extent. I, I I mean, I, I, I guess I hadn't thought about that. I, I, what, the thing I, I do think about often, particularly lately, I don't know why, is if the Astros don't have the cheating scandal, all the other stuff in the book, you know, you, you can have all this stuff going on and not have it result in this extreme, extreme thing of the cheating, right? Like, and you know, it, it starts to, it raises an interesting question. Would people believe that? Would, would people be able to look at a baseball team that hadn't cheated is winning a lot of games? You know, if you go back to 2019, I mean, this, it, it was even part of my thought process at the time when I, before Ken and I break the story, I'm sitting there going, who the hell is going to believe me? <laughs> you know, that this team would have done this and that's about the cheating. You know, it, it, again, we are so conditioned fans, media, all of us winning is good. And everything else must be good. Um, and yes, I think winning brings attention. I, I don't, I think just as a generality, that's true. Um, but, you know, 
do people want to know how the sausage is made? Do you care about the means to the end or just the end? And look, a lot of fans, it is just the end. And I think in the case of the Astros, I, I hope some people just consider what the means were, you know? And, and it's not that they were all bad. There was a lot of smart stuff going on, but there was a lot of ugly stuff going on too. Do you think that with your book coming out that other franchises, whether it be MLB or NBA or NFL, will start to look at cultures within clubhouses and go, hey, wait, 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 stop. This isn't right. You know, is, is that something that this can lead to? Do you think that people are just going to uh, tie sign stealing to this and kind of not look at that? Um, how do you see this going going forward? I think anybody who gets through the who, who picks up the book and reads it is going to realize it's not a sign stealing book. Right? It, it, yes, we get the sign stealing, we reveal things about sign stealing, but it's not the really you know it's a larger story than that that includes sign stealing. Um, I mean, I got a text from somebody today who, who said they had. Uh, I've, I've gotten a few texts from people saying, you know, I told my buddy in. in the scout to read it and this person in the front office like there was another writer i think it was yesterday who texted me and said um i was trying to talk to somebody and they all they only kept talking about your book which is very flattering um i do there was a tweet today from tom tom cream the uh the former college basketball coach who now i think is um an analyst broadcaster anyway um you know, and he, so he's somebody who's involved in athletics at a high level. And, you know, he, he was reading it on a plane and uh, he, he said he was enjoying it. I, I think it's possible people could read this and be, and, you know, ask questions about their own operation. I, you know, does anybody then act on it in some way? I don't know. I, you know, I, that'd be cool uh, if, if it opens people's eyes. Um, I kind of hope it does, but, you know, it's also easy to read something and be like, oh, that's interesting. And then not do anything, you know, I mean, it's, so I don't know. I, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know. So there's a book that I read that that someone sent me that they wrote, and it's I think it's called the Department Investigation for Major League Baseball. I think that's what it's called. And he was part a baseball of baseball cop, maybe. Yeah, is that what it was? He's, he lives was in a, like yes, Florida. The, or if something? the author was a part of Department of Investigations, you're probably thinking of, thinking of Baseball Cop. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like in that book, he was talking about how he would find out how they're smuggling the Cubans over, how they're stealing the, you know, the people from the Dominican, they're stealing their uh, signing bonuses and all this bad stuff. And he kept finding bad things and MLB just here. Okay. Don't talk about it anymore. We'll take care of it. And they just sweep it under the rug. Right. And so that's probably what was going on because like in Ben Ryder's book, you know, he's saying like, yeah, the Astros knew they're like, Hey, they know you're what you're doing. Watch what you're doing. They know what's going on, but they don't bring it out. Cause they're trying to, they're trying to protect the game. So what are your thoughts about this, about just MLB covering things up? Yeah, by late 17, you know, look, MLB screwed up here in a lot of ways. Um, and the book covers this and I've, I've been vocal about this and my, you know, the athletic and beyond. Um, they screw up by not realizing what could happen with the video rooms, right? They bring replay into the sport. Every team gets a video room and no, and nobody sits there and goes, gee, I wonder what might happen. And then when it starts to pick up, right. And you get to 17, 
and you have these crossfire accusations between the Red Sox and the Yankees. This is the Apple Watch scandal. You know, this is Manfred's first chance to really kind of do something about it. He finds both of them, doesn't explain what's going on with the Yankees at all publicly. Like if you read his press release on the Yankees, it's it's just I think I think I used word soup to describe it. it it's you know what no one could read it and understand what was going on. Um, you know, and he thinks he's drawing this line in the sand, and that's the name of the chapter. This is in lines in the sand, where all right, you know, now people are going to listen to me and they're going to stop. And you know, this is part of the problem for the Astros and for the Red Sox following you. You know, the commissioner's office looked at that point in time, September 2017, is knock it off. Right. It, 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 the fact that they were light on the Red Sox and Yankees at that point might have been a tacit acknowledgement that. Um, all right, this this is spread in some way and, you know, we're not going to, you know, just before the playoffs, we're not going to suspend everybody. Right. Um, and that was the video room system. It was the base runner system. Um, MLB's interests in general are to protect the interests of the owners in the sport, I guess, but really the owners. MLB doesn't want scandal after scandal after scandal. They want punishments to be a matter of deterrence and, and convincing people not to do something in the future. Well, the, in the case of the Astros and then the Red Sox a year later, you know, they're almost throwing it inadvertently back in the commissioner's face. It's yeah. You, you tried to draw a line in the sand, but we didn't listen. Um, and so at that point, you can almost understand the commissioner going, uh, we can't have this, right? I, we, I can't have myself drawing um, the line and then having it so flagrantly stepped over. Um, but he should have, you know, he should have drawn a, a harder line. It, there, there was still a lack of understanding and foresight uh, that the commissioner's office had here. So. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't think it's as simple as MLB, like knew everything that was going on the whole time, you know, going back to 2015, it was just like, we're not going to deal with it. But were they reticent to deal with it? Yeah, I mean, I, in the book, I say, you know, I, I, I myself talked to higher ups at MLB in 2018 about what I knew the Astros had done in 2017. And I get it from an MLB perspective. You can't like. When are you going to send in a major investigative squad? Is it because some reporter tells you they've got something, but they haven't printed it yet? That's tough, right? But there's no question MLB could have moved sooner in general. Um, frankly, specifically in the Astros, you know, I mean, that was the one that was really, um, you know, we know Mike Fires had talked to his t couple clubhouses about it. There's a lot of smoke around the Astros, smoke around some other teams, but, um, you know, I mean, I, Again, I told I told Major League Baseball what I knew generally in, in October of 2018, and you know nothing happened until I did the story. Do you think that the commissioner's office has the 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 fortitude to be able to police the game, uh, showing what what happened in 2017 and 2018, or is this something where they're always going to be reactive? I you know. You know, they have the new rules this year, right? And and they're being pretty public about talking about we want to – we're aware that teams are going to try to circumvent these rules. I, I do get the sense that, that after the science feeling, they're, they're a little more on guard, and they should be, about, you know, the lengths people will go to to try to get an edge. 
it's typically always the case that rule breakers are going to be ahead of rule makers and rule enforcers. So yeah, some, someday as I knock over my soda can, um, <laughs> someday somebody's going to try to cheat again. We may find out about it. We may not. Um, you know, I. So can they do it? They can stop some stuff, but, you know, what's stopping somebody? Truly, what is stopping somebody from going to the plate with a buzzer? Nothing, except fear of a massive punishment, right? And, you know, and so the door to the imagination is open and somebody someday might have, you know, the gall to try something egregious, um, try to hack into pitch com, try to hack into the automated ball strikes. Who knows? Right. I have no idea. Um, so unless you, you know, set up a TSA style pre-check or, or you know, a scanning system before a guy goes to the plate, who the hell knows? They'll always find a new way to to try yeah. to get around things science stealing or otherwise right well it doesn't have to be science stealing necessarily it could be something no. else yeah so i'm curious i mean i haven't had a chance to read the book I, I was with my wife at the mall and i was looking for it and they had just they didn't have it i think i saw it on amazon but we're in the process of moving so i haven't i haven't ordered it's it yet right. but i'm definitely going to but like what's it. what what i'm really curious about is like i know mike fires and i know this probably isn't what the book's about but He's the one that came out, and I know people, hey, this is going on, this is going on, but it's always anonymous. But he's the guy that put his name on it, and that's kind of what got the ball rolling. Did you guys hear about it, and you went to talk to him? Like, how did we get Mike Fires as the one that came out? Yeah, so this is one of these topics that I, I saw kind of a lot of, a lot of assumptions made about what the reporting process was in the time I was doing the book and, you know, we didn't say anything, but, but so let me explain. Um, Ken Rosenthal called Mike fires literally three days before we published. We already had all the facts. We, we had everything. Um, and we were still trying to get more as we should. And we were still hoping that somebody would go on the record. It'd be fantastic. If, if you could get you know anything, it doesn't matter what you're reporting on. You want somebody on the record, right? Little thing, big thing, doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, to Fire's credit, he was willing to do it. It is very, very difficult to be a whistleblower, to put yourself out there in that way and say, hey, I think we were doing something wrong. Um, that is not an easy thing, thing to do. It's rarely seen in corporate settings. But, you know, whistleblowers are, are important. Um, so... It's not the case that Mike Fires deciding to go on the record is what ended up leading to this story coming out or that Mike Fires one day called us up and said, hey, you guys know the Astros are cheating. It's not how it happened. It, it was a 13 month investigation process. Um, and Mike was really the end game. And uh, it, it, it's not to minimize the important. Again, it's so much better to have somebody on the record than not. But one of the things that I think might have worked in our favor, when Ken calls him, Ken's not calling to fish, right? It's not like, hey, did you hear anything about the Astros cheating? It's, we're writing a story. We got the whole thing. Let me read you what we got. You know, does Mike go on the record if we don't already have everything? I don't know. You know, it's a question he'd have to answer. But no, it wasn't like Mike Fires 
it's inaccurate to say Mike Fires decided to blow the lid off the whole thing. It's just not how it actually unfolded. But he was, he still made a a, a very major decision. So you feel like Mike Fires or not, the outcome was going to be the outcome. Like as you, far as like we we were three days from publishing, and and I you know you can sit there and argue, would, well would the world react the same way? We had all the other facts. Uh, Canada Ray talked to Farquhar that day. You know, we're not some rinky dink outlet. You know what I mean? Like we're not we're not nobodies. Uh, Ken is certainly more of a somebody than I am. But um, you know, it's a major story with major facts. And let's say Fires wasn't on the record. Well, presumably, John Boy still finds all the video. So, you know, like the idea that if Fires doesn't talk, um, things look a lot different in the reaction. I don't think so. I mean, people, you know, maybe somebody tries to say the story wasn't true, but we knew the story was true. You know, we, we're not publishing that story if you don't know it's true and we're, you know, extra confident. In it. So, um yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think having somebody on the record makes it easier, makes it harder for somebody to try to brush it aside. Yeah. To me, at the end of the day, there's no way that this story would have ever, even if Byers wasn't on the record, actually gotten, you know, just dismissed as nothing. When I or first heard, when I first heard about it, and and they mentioned how they were doing it, I was like, "There's no way, there's no way that happened." And yeah. then I saw the video with Farquhar. Is that what his name is? Farquhar? Danny Farquhar. Yeah. I saw the video and I put the headphones on and I was listening and I was like, I was crushed as a fan. Yeah. Because yeah. I got to where I could predict what they were going to pitch and then you could hear it. I mean, I, I didn't believe it at all. And then when I heard it, I was crushed. And that's kind of a like a mistake by other fan bases that we didn't care. But the Astro fans do care. And they were upset about it, just like everybody else. But eventually, you just get tired of hearing about it. But I, I agree with you. I, I don't even think it needed fires once John Boy came out with the videos. If you watch them, you can tell that they were doing it. And I don't know. It was pretty shocking. Um, but when the Astros came out with the and with the uh, at the spring training, you know, apologizing and all that, how, do you think the Astros handled it well? With the firing of the GM and the manager and all that. Well, pro I mean, the you know, the firings are kind of in their own category. You know, the, the the PR side of it afterward. Now that spring training press conference they handled terribly. I wasn't at that one, but um, you know, Jim Crane says he he he. What was the line he said? He said, "I don't think it affected um, play or or the result, something like that." And then, you know, a, a follow-up question from a reporter comes, whatever, you know, 30 seconds later, how can you say that or something like that? And he goes, I didn't say that. Well, you just said it. You literally just said it. Uh, no, it was it was bad. It was um, the, the Astros PR efforts. I mean, really going back to the Taubman incident, you can even go back further than that, but uh, they've made a lot of gaffes. I mean, one of the people who interviewed for that portion of the book is David Sampson, who used to be the Marlins president. He said that the Astros and Jim Crane handled the post-scandal time as bad as uh, any anybody in baseball had handled any kind of controversy that he'd seen. And that was saying a lot, he said, because 
you know, baseball's had a lot of controversies. It's true. I mean, it was really handled very poorly. Got anything, Tom? No, no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't really have anything else. I do, do you think it's kind of crazy that because Beltron and Cora were kind of, you know, as far as what I've read, that they're kind of the ringleaders, like, hey, you need to step up your game. And I know Beltron lost his job and Cora got suspended, but they hired him back. And then the the crazy thing to me is like the cheating scandal kind of made the Yankees our number one haters, but then they hire Beltron to work on their mm-hmm. network. Like that that was pretty shocking. Right. Now he's back with the Mets. Um it is it is interesting to see the uh it's kind of perverse, but there's a whole narrative element that comes along with this, right? People probably pay more attention to the Astros now. Um you know, I can imagine that somebody turns on an Astros game and you know, who's not much of a baseball fan. Oh, I I read about them or I, I heard something about those guys. Um, or infamous. So in a weird little way, little way, it's not actually the worst thing for, for baseball. It's it's bad in a lot of other ways for baseball, questioning the integrity of the sport and whatnot. But um, it is a narrative. It is a storyline, you know, and, and sports needs storylines sometimes. All right, Evan, that's all we have. Um, I appreciate you coming on, and I'll for sure get that book. I promise you I was out looking for it. It sounds great. And again, guys, I mean, we've had people on Twitter saying this isn't an Astros bashing, you know, cheating scandal book. It is about the front office, and it should be an interesting read. So, Evan, thanks a lot, sir. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time on Astros Baseball.